Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we're continuing our series, Make It Count, with a message titled, Of Faith and Failure. So turning your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 to 18, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I don't think I'm an avid sports fan, but I must confess, I'm hooked on NFL football, and I like it for several reasons. The season is relatively short, so every game matters, and I also like it for all the strategy that is involved. And finally, I like it because there are some lessons about human triumphs and human failures to be learned. And when it comes to the big games where the entire season is on the line, well, I find that part fascinating. Often the player who performs well might not be the player who's got the most talent, but rather the player who rises to the occasion. The pressure to perform, well, that can be intense, and some can't handle that pressure, and others, amazingly, seem to thrive in the midst of it. But in the NFL, and I suspect in other sports leagues as well, a player's ultimate worth is seen in how they handle matters in the biggest games. Now, allow me to say one more thing about that. Players don't have big games if they haven't performed well throughout the season. But, and I guess this is the point I really want to make, is that some have been performing well throughout, but can never, over repeated attempts, ever win the big game. It's all a part of sports psychology and the makeup of each individual player. Second Timothy, as we've seen, is Paul's last letter. Great persecution has broken out against believers, and at some time, and we don't know when, Paul had been arrested along with a good many of other believers. It's somewhere between the years 80, 64, and 67. Persecution is on the rise. It's becoming very dangerous to be a Christian, especially in Rome. Paul himself is expecting death to come. So what then should concern the apostle? And we'll see as we continue to study this important letter that this moment before his coming execution, well, it allows the apostle to look back on his own life. And in chapter 3, he says to Timothy, You have observed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, as well as my persecutions and sufferings. And in chapter 4, he says that he's fought the good fight and that he's now finished the race. That's all a part of looking back to see that his life has been a fruitful one. No, Paul was not sinless. But there were no skeletons hiding in his closet. He had fought the good fight. But we'll also see that in this book, Paul speaks about the hope that is now set before him. Well, in chapter 4, he'll speak about the crown of righteousness that awaits him as he stands before the Lord in glory. And because of the resurrection of Jesus, Paul is fully aware that his journey is not ending at the place where prisoners are beheaded. You know, the greatest adventure lies before him. His eyes are bright, and he's filled with anticipation of what is now to come. And so you don't find 2 Timothy as a sad book, but hopefully, as we read it, we should find it as a joyful one. And of course, since Paul's life in Christ was taken up in but one thing, that is, the advancement of the gospel, it's also not surprising to us that the things he writes Timothy has to do with the next leg of the journey. The baton of the gospel is about to be passed. The apostolic era is coming to an end. Paul is using these last moments to fill Timothy and others with encouragement. As you've watched me, so now it's your time 
to stand at the center of the great battlefield and carry on. And with that as a background, let's read today's text. I know it's a short one, and you might wonder why I'm devoting an entire sermon to this point, but I hope as you follow it through, you'll find this expenditure of time worthwhile. So I'm reading 2 Timothy 1, 13-18. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. So let's start where I ended yesterday. The first instructions we find here, it's found in verses 13 and 14. Well, they're instructions that Timothy guard the deposit. The image we have here is of money placed into a bank account. So Paul's telling Timothy, look at the riches that have been credited to you. Your job now is to make sure the deposit isn't lost. But of course, the deposit is the truth of the gospel. Well, since the image here is making sure that the deposit isn't lost, this isn't really an image of proclaiming the gospel. Of course, that's what Timothy is to do. But in terms of specific instructions, guarding the deposit in practical terms must mean make sure that the gospel remains pure and untouched by false teaching and heresy. And that's why Paul begins with these words. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. Yeah, sound words, sound truths, sound doctrine, sound teaching about Christ that I've entrusted to you. Keep that teaching sound. Keep it free from impurity and error. Now, that shouldn't surprise us, for we know that Paul has dealt with false teachers constantly. As an example, Philippians 3, verse 2, look out for the dogs. So when you read that verse in context, It's clear he's not referring to persecution from without, but rather false teachers who have infiltrated the church. And so Timothy is told in no uncertain terms that he is to fight against false teachers. I mean, after all, that's why Paul had sent Timothy to Ephesus. So listen to how Paul begins the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 1 verse 3, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia... Remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Now, there he means any other doctrine than the apostolic doctrine that Timothy had received. And so, well, it shouldn't surprise us then that in the second book that Paul writes to Timothy, Timothy's still in Ephesus, he gives him the same instructions, guard the deposit. Now, if you study church history, you might be surprised to find how much energy has been expended in the past in just this one thing, fighting heresy. You know, during the first several centuries, Christians fought against major false teachings, teachings that threatened to take over the entire church. Now, if those heresies had succeeded, I mean, eventually the deposit would have been exhausted, leaving the church with nothing to preach. And so in the first five centuries, the church fought against, well, such heresies as docetism that taught that Jesus only appeared to be human but wasn't, adoptionism that taught that Jesus had not always been God, Montanism and Sabellianism, and then Arianism. Wow, that one almost succeeded. It taught that Jesus was a created being, and at that time it was Athanasius, the great man of God who guarded the deposit. 
And then at the time of Augustine, it was a battle against a false teacher named Pelagius and the doctrine of Pelagianism that taught that man didn't have a fallen nature at all and that man consequently was free to make any choices he wanted and he didn't require the grace of God to be saved. Oh, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Lots of those forms of heresies around today. Now, for those of you who know your history, the Protestant Reformation beginning in the 1500s, that's really noteworthy. Reformers weren't saying that they were starting a new church or that they were starting anything new at all. Rather, they pointed at Catholicism and said, you've been starting new things and new doctrines constantly, one after another, from the belief that the church has the power to save rather than Jesus, to purgatory, to the idea that you can sell indulgences to forgive people's sins. You've not guarded the deposit. You've plundered the deposit. Now, I say all those things so that we won't think that our day is unique. I mean, there are so many heresies today, but it's like it's always been. So we also must guard the deposit. We must not imagine that Timothy, in guarding the deposit, will become a harsh and bitter man, pointing out everyone's errors. Notice when Paul speaks of guarding the deposit, how he couches his words. Look again at verse 8, where he speaks of the deposit, which is both the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, The faith refers to the truths of the gospel, but the love refers to the heart for those who are hearing it. The gospel of Jesus is not just a gospel of the saving work of Jesus. It's also the gospel of a Jesus who changes human lives. That also must be guarded, lest the words of Jesus lose their significance. And so for Timothy, guarding the deposit will mean that he'll have to pay a similar cost what Paul did. Paul was awaiting execution. The cost he paid demanded his life. It's what the gospel demands. Now then, Paul turns to those who have not paid the cost. Have a look at verse 15. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygalus and Hermogenes. Those words are stunning. These men would not guard the deposit. Back to the Bible Canada has a global vision the size of our global mission. Partnerships around the world ensure that we do our part to sow God's word beyond the confines of country, culture, or language, and India is one example. Since 2017, in partnership with Back to the Bible India, Dr. John's messages have been broadcast in hard-to-reach regions across India, in fact, much of Asia. Three pastor conferences have taken place working together to train biblical leaders for the church in India. And thousands of Bible teaching resources have been translated and distributed to believers hungry for God's truth. And the sowing is bearing fruit. Sonu wrote to say, in my journey with Back to the Bible, I am blessed by the word of God. Now my whole family is serving the Lord. While February is our International Ministries Month, please consider a special gift to reach our $50,000 international ministry goal. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. I think that when Paul said, you are aware, Timothy, that all in Asia have turned away from me, that Timothy must very sadly have nodded his head, I mean, because he knew. Indeed, at that very moment when 
Timothy received Paul's letters, Timothy was in the city of Ephesus and he was living in the province of Asia. Timothy had seen firsthand how easily people run from trouble. Even the people of God, it's really a a matter of survival. They don't want to be caught up in trouble. Now, we today don't know anything about the two men that Paul mentions here, Phygalus and Hermogenes. But it seems fairly likely that these two men would have been well-known Christian leaders. And so here's what we might think the scenario looked like. It seems to me that these two men had been asked to appear with Paul at his trial and serve as witnesses in his favor. But they hadn't wanted to take the risk, and because of their lack of boldness and because they were leaders, others followed their example. You know, it's simply a fact. Human beings are equipped to follow leadership. When leaders exhibit courage, people become courageous. Well, an example might be Winston Churchill when the bombings began in the Second World War. His words that the English people were made of exceptional stuff, courageous people who would fight the invading Nazis on the beaches, on the landing grounds, in the fields and in the streets, that no matter what, the English people would never surrender. Well, those words struck a nerve. Courage rose up. People said, yeah, we will never surrender. But what if Churchill would have appeared by wringing his hands and saying, I'm just not sure what we're going to do. Our military isn't ready. The Germans have a vastly superior fighting force. And, you know, well, in a little while, everyone would have agreed. Yeah, we're doomed. So leadership inspires courage or cowardice. And I would bet that Phygalus and Hermogenes inspired cowardice. My goodness. Christian people began to think, what are we to do? We're all going to be destroyed. And so inspired by that kind of leadership, all the province of Asia turned from Paul. And we need to stop and think again about guarding the deposit. Surely a part of that is not just to point out error when we see it, but proving to the people of God that the gospel is more important than our lives. See, we need leaders who don't cower in the day of trouble. We need a model of steadiness, clear-headedness, and an expression of certainty in the lordship of Jesus. You can't guard the deposit if you lack boldness or courage. But then, lest we think all is lost, Paul is quick now to point out one significant exception. There was one man who didn't fail. He stood in faith. You know, to use my football example, here's that one man who, when the pressure was on for the big game, well, he calmed his nerves and he knew what he had to do. Look at verse 16 again. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Now, it's not certain whether Anesiphorus came as a result of Paul's request or whether he came on his own. But however he came, he came. And Paul says, when he came, he not only refreshed me but once, he says he often refreshed me. And said Paul, he didn't seem to be bothered by my chains. He wasn't even the slightest bit ashamed that the foremost Christian leader in that area was in jail. He immediately went to my side. Now, it's true that Roman prisoners were reliant on friends and family to supply them with their basic needs, and clearly, that must have been what Onesiphorus did. Whether he brought money and resources from the church in Ephesus, or whether he spent his own cash, Paul doesn't say. But then Paul adds something that's curious here. He's asking God not only to grant mercy to Onesiphorus, but to his entire household. So why does Paul mention the household? Well, there are several possibilities. I mean, one is that when Anesiphorus showed up, it might have been 
that his entire family would be investigated by authorities. So not only was he in danger, so also were his wife and children. I mean, that's one possibility. Well, another is that Anesiphorus left for Rome to stand with Paul, that he was the principal breadwinner in his family. And now that he was in Rome, the financial situation in his family became difficult. Well, a third possibility is that Anesiphorus was being charged with crimes now, and his family was beside themselves with worry. Now, any of these things are possible. But even considering these things helps us to understand that what this man did had an impact on his family. And we have to understand that such is the nature of this man's courage. But from Paul's perspective, this had lifted him. It caused him to rejoice. He wasn't alone. And I think we need to stop here and make application. If it should be that the government takes action against faithful believers for sharing the gospel with others, we must not let those imprisoned for sharing the good news be left alone. We must visit them. We must bring them Christian literature meant to encourage them. They must hear that believers are standing as one accord, determined never to turn their backs on them. That's a command from God. Hebrews 13 verse 3 commands us, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. See, that reminder that we are also in the same body with them tells us that the prisoners spoken of here were believers who were imprisoned for their faith and for their activity in gospel proclamation. And so it's a command of God that we visit and refresh those who are persecuted for their faith and not just to think of ourselves and how we can remain safe. Do you remember what Paul wrote in Philippians 1, 27 to 28? With one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. See, that's it. Communicate to the powers who would try to stop the advancement of the kingdom that all the persecution in the world will not stop you. Anesiphorus exemplified exactly that. So let's keep going in 2 Timothy. And here we come to verse 17. Speaking of Anesiphorus, Paul says, but when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. So why did Anesiphorus have to search for Paul? And here are some possible reasons. You know, he probably had never been in Rome, so it was not apparent to him where to look for Paul. But also, Paul was being held somewhere where even the believers in Rome had no idea where he was. And furthermore, it is possible that a great many of believers in Rome had already been imprisoned and killed, and confusion reigned. I mean, after that, there was the aftermath of the great Roman fire, which would have reduced a great part of the city to ashes, and Anesiphorus might have had very little idea as to where he would even begin to find Paul in this great city. And so you have to imagine him asking everywhere, you know, where are the prisoners being held? Where are the Christian prisoners being held? Has anyone heard of Paul? And he goes from person to person, from official to official, never knowing if the official he's speaking to is going to be friendly to his questions or whether with each question he's bringing himself into greater danger. But whatever the process was, can you imagine Paul's face as Anesiphorus suddenly shows up? I mean, how in the world did you find me? Now we come to verse 18. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord in that day. And you know well all the service he rendered at Ephesus. And I need here to mention one theory about this verse. 
You know, some argue that the wish that Anesiphorus finds mercy when he stands before God's bar of judgment is because, at least so it's imagined by some, that Anesiphorus has already died. Now, it's just a theory we don't know, but Paul lists him as one man who, when the pressure was on, played the best game of his life. Looking at the Roman machine, he never flinched. He entrusted his life to God. So let's come back to where we began, to the the sports illustration. You know, in all sports, there are athletes who, when the big game is on, they either grasp it and have the game of their lives, whereas there are others, when the big game is on, they simply can't take it and they fail miserably. Phygalus and Hermogenes, well, they choked. But Anesiphorus, he rose to the occasion and is this day greatly honored in the magnificent courts of heaven before the great king. He was equal to the moment, as he had said in verse 18. He has always been faithful in whatever area of service he had been entrusted in. What should we learn when we consider these things? See, my earnest prayer is that none of you who hear my voice would need to go through the things that Paul went through. May God spare us from such suffering in our day. But if in his wise and sovereign plans, we should find ourselves facing similar persecution, can we determine this now, that our lives have always belonged to Christ? Our lives aren't our own. They've been purchased at a price. You know, we're not revolutionaries. We don't seek to overthrow the power centers of this world. But we must always proclaim that our first loyalty is to Jesus. Let us determine to be like Paul and Anesiphorus, never like Phygalus and Hermogenes. Thanks so much, John. John, how do you think I can know that when when the pressure is greatest, that I simply won't fail, I won't choke when it comes to being faithful? <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, how does any of us ever know ourselves well enough to actually answer that? Uh, at the same time, I do believe that, uh, you know, when Jesus said that don't even, you know, make up your mind what you should say for the Holy Spirit will give you the words to speak, you know, should that hour of persecution come upon us. Well, I take from that that I'm not confident when I look at myself. I see, um, you know, self-preservation is a huge issue in my life, uh, and maybe I'm a coward too. But at the same time, I am convinced that the boldness that comes supernaturally from the Holy Spirit to the life of all believers can be counted on in that hour. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series, Make It Count, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Hi, this is Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. We believe Bible teaching is critical for God's people. And your support is critical in making the daily Bible teaching program with Dr. Neufeld available on this station. But we know there's times when you may miss the radio program, so we want to remind you of all the opportunities available for free for your use and convenience. At backtothebible.ca, you can search through a library of messages and series, both audio and video with Dr. John, but also learn more about our ministry podcasts, YouTube channels, mobile applications, and print resources. Our desire is to serve you so that the Bible teaching you can trust is available to as many people in as many ways as possible. For more information or to support this Bible teaching ministry, Call us at 1-800-663-2425 
or visit backtothebible.ca.